Welcome to Audacious Water, the podcast about how to create a world of water abundance for everyone. I'm John Sabo, director of the Bywater Institute at Tulane University. On today's episode, forests and agriculture are essential to watersheds, but should we also think of them as water infrastructure? And if we should, what does that mean for managing them? My guest is Michael Dean, chief of the Clean Water State Revolving Fund at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the agency's largest water quality financing program. Coming up, I talk with Michael about how the Clean Water SRF program works, why the EPA cares about wildfires and forest health, and how the EPA is thinking about managing basin-scale pollution in a river basin like the Mississippi. Michael, one of the things I like to do in the beginning of, of these podcasts is just talk about your path to your current position and sort of a brief version of your career in water and how you got here. Sure. Thank you, John. I'll spare you the details of kind of a long meandering through a career, but certainly uh, I think it's important to start and it's relevant to our discussion today. My initial interest in water kind of growing up as a, as a child in Minnesota, I landed 10,000 lakes and uh, spending my life around water and creeks and lakes and it's just what we did. It's what we did every day. We went down played played in the creek and caught crayfish and went fishing and learned to start boating and canoeing. And that's what it was. And then as I studied and started looking at the natural world, which uh, which I was very involved with and intrigued by and, and loved, I realized that water in particular really was the nexus of so many things. It's why, where I grew up in the Twin Cities, it's why they exist there at the confluence of the Minnesota, Mississippi rivers. It's where commerce comes together. It's where it provides transportation, provides farmland, provides all of that. So I really started looking at the importance of water and got intrigued with it and then looked to get into that business. So I started my career many years ago at EPA, actually, interestingly, to help set up the Clean Water Study Revolving Fund program as an intern. Was there for quite a few years and then moved on to industry, working for several water management companies, always in the realm of water infrastructure and water policy. Returned to EPA back in 2006, 2009 for a stint. And then uh, just recently, a year ago, came back to EPA when the uh, job opportunity came to lead the State Revolving Fund program that I helped start up many, many years ago. And at a very interesting time, which I think we'll be talking about today, kind of really getting back to those roots of myself in the water industry where you know, I didn't grow up saying, hey, I'm interested in building wastewater or drinking water infrastructure systems. It was about the broader context of water. So we're really looking at the EPA these days to, to, to integrate that and how can utilities play a bigger role and how can our financing programs play a bigger role in, in broader water management is I think we're finally breaking down some of the silos that we've suffered from over the years. So let's dive in. So today, hopefully talking about finance and sort of your new role with the SRFs and innovating within that framework that that has been around for a while. So maybe just start out with what are the function of the revolving funds within the EPA and and how are the the two different? Sure. So basically the the Clean Water State Revolving Fund Program is a a strong federal-state partnership. started in 1988. We also have a drinking water SRF now, which started about a decade later, but we'll, we'll talk about clean water today. It's a partnership and it's a program of 51 states in Puerto Rico. And it combines the leverages federal capitalization grants that are appropriated every year, along with state matching dollars to go along with that. And then very importantly, the principal and industry payments of these loans, the revolving fund program. So, you know, the nature of this is that it's always growing resources that are continuing to address the, the wastewater infrastructure needs of today and also 
is well positioned. It's for, it has a lot of lot of capacity to be innovative in addressing the kind of the water quality challenges of of the future as well. So we need to evolve. We've made a lot of great progress in a lot of ways. We have new challenges, and I think it's very important that what is the agency's largest water quality financing program evolve along with it as well to to help our partners at the state and local level to address their most challenging water quality needs. The other thing is that it, you know it's very important. I think what's unique about it. It's a loan program, so people say, what about the bond market? Is it the unique strength that, they, that can really tailor the financial assistance to best need, best meet the needs of a particular borrower? So that kind of the core program is we provide loans down to 0%, from zero to market rate. We don't have to get into the details of what market rate is in any given year, but down to 0%. And it also has the capacity to provide some of the assistance in the form of what we call additional subsidization, which is essentially grants or principal forgiveness or interest rate loans as well. So... We're not a grant program, but we do understand that that if you're looking at a particular projects, sometimes a little bit of uh, additional subsidy can really help get a project moving forward, and that's that's important. Right, for the context, this is 1988. The program's provided about 145 billion dollars of assistance to nearly 43,000 uh, projects over the years. Just last year alone, fiscal year, we did about seven and a half billion dollars in loans at an average interest rate of about 1.2 percent across all of the programs. Well, that's a lot of projects. And that actually was my next question. So you you read my mind. That's great. Give the, the listeners an idea of what sort of typical projects for for the clean water SRF look like. Like is it a wastewater treatment plant? Is it pipe rebuild? What is it? Yeah. So well the program is best known as providing low-cost financing to communities for construction of publicly owned wastewater treatment works. It kind of grew out of the construction grants program in the original Clean Water Act that that was really focused on building after, you know, in 1972, the, the stock of secondary treatment and advanced treatment wastewater treatment plants. It's, as I mentioned, it's very flexible and innovative to be also help communities address other critical water quality uh, needs, such as excess nutrient pollution from agriculture, silviculture, urban stormwater, and increasingly, which I'm excited to talk to you about uh, today, I believe, is forestry management to prevent wildfires and, and and resulting impacts in water quality as well. So those are the challenges that we face now. And that's good. You know, our, our wastewater treatment systems are critical. They've been a huge part, a major part of the success in meeting the objectives of the Clean Water Act over, over the years. And they're doing a really, really great job and we'll always be working with them. And they'll always be a significant, if not major, and probably major part of the assistance. But when you look at where the primary cause of water, of impairments of water bodies today are, particularly those that have total maximum daily load standards, only 24% of those waters are currently impaired by point sources like wastewater treatment plants and industrial discharges, and 76% are from non-point sources. Yet when you look at that $145 billion we provided over the last 32 years, over 93% of it, $135 billion, has gone to wastewater treatment systems, and less than 4%. So for $5 billion has gone to non-point sources. So if you look at where the water quality impairments are coming from and where this program is allocating its resources, there's a, a huge divergence. And it shouldn't equal, but we are really interested in trying to figure out how can we work with our state partners to target more of these non-point source impairments with the, with the substantial funding and flexibility this program has. That's cool. And that is very relevant to the topic of this chapter of podcast, which is on natural infrastructure. And so let's pivot there. But let's talk about that pivot point for you. I mean, you I mean, you just said four or five percent of the projects are fo- historically have been on 
non-point source problems and actually yeah right but the funding very very interesting the funding lobbyists are much smaller in size so the the percentage of dollars is low the percentage of actual projects is probably not quite as low because it takes a lot of non-point source projects at a hundred and fifty thousand to meet one ten million dollar wastewater treatment plant right so right so let's go let's go there i mean you know in the pre-work that we did uh, for this podcast we talked about this the last year last five years have been monumental in terms of forest fires forests are burning down all around us how is the epa relevant in this context and setting yeah so well you know as we all know wildfires absolutely devastating to water quality um and in resiliency of water supply as well and that that, that blog you wrote back in november that got this conversation that we have going you wrote i have it down here you said, if the United States wants to shore up our existing water storage and existing infrastructure, we have to figure out how to manage forests better. And that's absolutely the case. So it's everything that Clean Water Steady Revolving Fund does has to have statute by regulation of water quality benefits. So we're not out there to, to stop forest fires itself. But because of the impact of them, it, there's a very direct relationship to what we do and what we can fund. So Forests provide massive water quality benefits compared to most, perhaps any other land use, actually. So uh, the U.S. Forest Service says that uh, 180 million people are provided drinking water uh, by uh, forest watersheds. So it's a huge impact for the drinking water and as well as the environmental objectives that we have. So, you know, good forest management means good water management and good wildfire management. You know, healthy forest holds water and its soil and vegetation a lot better which can reduce the incidence and, and certainly the intensity of fires, healthy vegetation and canopy covers, um, intercept rainfall and prevent from becoming, you know, surface flows that cause overland and in-stream erosion and extreme flows and floods. So there's really an intersection here between preventing forest fires in order to prevent all those adverse things from happening. So the practices themselves, it's not always for forest fires. We, you know, we, we can talk about some of the projects um, that we've done, but as I said, good forest management is wildfire management. So a lot of the practices are not necessarily directly to forest thing for, uh, you know, under understory or that type of thing, but a well-managed forest will be less likely to have at least an intense wildfire and will, by definition, help the watershed retain and slowly release over time the, the water that's needed for other uses as well. So this is all very relevant, you know, it's all very relevant to our, our mission to protect ecosystems as well as uh, drinking water source protection and promoting healthy communities. Makes a lot of sense. Let's get local. Let's talk about some examples. And one of them is in Arizona. The Clean Water State Revolving Fund program has has worked in Arizona on wildfire. Tell us a little bit about the project. Yeah, very exciting project I'm interested in. And, you know, kudos to the uh, Water Infrastructure Finance Authority of Arizona, our SRF partner that runs the SRF there, has been really very eager to pursue this and, and promote it. So, uh, you know, this really came after after the uh, Schultz fire in 2010 in Flagstaff area, where it had devastating fires. I mean, you're, you're down there, you probably you recall that over 15,000 acres of forests uh, burned $150 million in damages, and, and including major damage to the water supply. One of their major pipes that's in forest service land got, got taken out as part of the fire. So, you know, they that really brought home to them the need for wildfire management for all sorts of reasons, not least of which is the water quality aspect of it. So, you know, following that, the Flagstaff realized that that was a critical part of their water supply, just as much as their pipes and their treatment plants were. So they, they actually put forest management in, into their capital improvement program and, and the costs there. So looked to make 
forest management on U.S. Forest Service land. Kind of interesting concept, right? You know, paying your water bill, what you might be assumed is being taken care of by your federal taxes up in, in the national forest. But if it's not happening, Flagstaff realized that they needed help help make it happen. So um, they applied for and received from the Clean Water SRF in Arizona $6 million loan with $1 million of that forgiven as part of that additional subsidization we talked about you know, at less than 2% interest rate. And they used those funds to, you know, thin or harvest uh, nearly 5,000 acres or better manage 5,000 acres to try to prevent the next Schultz fire from having the devastation, devastating impact that it had. Very importantly for this particular project, I think is another thing that we did in, at EPA is worked with the contract we have to look at a tool looking at the impacts of wildfire. So what's interesting, you're in Arizona, so you know, when Flagstaff went to take that $6 million loan, they had to go to referendum for that, right? So, so they need to go to the voters and say, we want to issue bonds, tax you for that, and we're going to make improvements in U.S. Forest Service land and, and, and adjacent, even some potentially adjacent private lands. And to make that case, you really have to show the, the benefits of it. So we worked with this, it's called a measurable benefits tool, and it's looking at specific metrics such as cost of wildfire suppression, and rehabilitation after impacts on property values, lost recreational value, economic activity, treatment costs, and basically economic prosperity. And it's a tool that can be used in various scenarios and various forests tracks to show that by doing this, you can deliver this amount of economic value, which really helps voters understand that, hey, we, we have an interest in this and the referendum past, and we have this tool now that we'd like to look and see if we can scale it up for use in other areas as well. Coming up, should we think about managing forests as water infrastructure? And can a new water and agriculture project help manage basin-scale pollution for the Mississippi River? Stay tuned. I have two questions. This is super interesting. One of them is about the tool, but let's come back to the tool question. The first one is is about the concept of infrastructure and, and what the utility and the city of Flagstaff are considering water infrastructure. In this case, it's the forest. And I think you pointed out as well that, you know, that infrastructure is owned by the federal government. So they're applying for loans to manage that such that the water supply and the overall infrastructure, the coupled built natural system works better. Is that something that's pretty typical, you think, in your experience? Or is that really innovative? I, I think it's innovative. I mean, there's lots of looking at ways of doing this and you know, partnerships are critically important. I, I think oftentimes people look for the source of financing, certainly for SRF program, it's often they, you know, get an SRF loan for this, where it really needs to be part of layering in other sources of financing as well. So as we realize what needs to be done, I think we our eyes are opening and we have to be willing to look at how to pursue that. And if it requires looking new ways of using existing programs or, or partnering with different programs. I think that, that that's critically important. So it's like pretty much everything in the water world, John, is it's, you know, it's very localized. It's very, there's lots of things going on. And I, I think we want to talk about the opportunity. I think for a lot of us as professionals, we get excited and we see all these little pilot projects, but what, what's really missing is scaling it up, right? How are we going to fundamentally make an impact you know, going forward? If we're not going to do it by five or 10 pilot projects scattered around the country, it's finding tools and, and ways of, of scaling it up. Do you think this project could scale to other places, could be used in, as a model in other places to do this? Uh, yeah, I believe so. So I've, I've looked at it. it. It's very specific on data sources, obviously. So it really depends on the data sources you can draw on. 
lands. It was very specifically for Arizona and, and U.S. Forest, forest lands there, but certainly if you have similar data and certainly the economic and the socioeconomic and demographic data that's required to get you know property values and all those sort of things, as long as you have access to that and can feed it in, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking about in the West, like I grew up in Colorado and I could envision similar things being relevant in Denver and Colorado Springs in Utah, probably in Nevada. We've got some of our uh, regional staff in, in Region 9, which is in San Francisco, very eager to see if, if you know, obviously our, our friends in California also have had some devastating fires and uh, are, this is in that sense stages of just initial discussions. Is there something we can transfer over you know, over there as well? So, and I, and I will I will say, I mean, it, it's preliminary, but, and it's not specific with this tool, but our we work very closely with our regional offices, obviously, in our Regional office, Region Ten up in uh, in Seattle is very interested in this, and, and we're working with the states up there. We've actually started a little work group of state and EPA people look at forest management slash wildfire. So clearly, this is this is getting a lot more attention as a as a potential financing source, and, uh, and we're very eager to to see what we can do with our partners. Very good. So let's return to that question about tools. You were talking about a tool and, and data that, that went into this Arizona case study pilot project. Tell me about the tool and, and its potential applicability in other places. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I had had our contractors walk me through it a while ago. So, you know, I'm not the best person with models and tools and that type of thing. But, you know, it looked pretty intuitive. Again, it's like all these tools are strong in data sources. So there's, you know, there's probably some rough big buckets and rough estimates, whatnot. But but at least it, it starts showcasing and formulating the thought process of, of return on investment, right? Which is we think way too often a lot of what we fund in the water world, whether it be a wastewater plant or forest practices is, what's the return on investment we're getting. And so I think it, it, more work needs to be done. And, we, you know, we need people to take it up. We need resources as well. I mean, we, we've, we financed the original development of that. Obviously, we can't finance it every place in every state, but we are looking for others that want, want to do it. Well, the ROI is important because the city of Flagstaff has to pay back that loan, right? That's the driver. Yep, absolutely. So, All right, well, let's shift gears. I think it's it's really interesting that EPA is engaged in in fire management in the West, but let's talk about other non-point sources, agriculture. Tell me about reharvest, Iowa. Yeah, so that's that's very interesting, Roger. So uh, reharvest is a, a partnership between a, a group that many of your listeners may know, Quantified Investments, and the Iowa Soybean Association, which is looking to make investments invest good management practices and agricultural service providers to generate both nutrient and carbon credits. It is to make the investments to the agriculture user, we'll, we'll say farmer for ease of, ease of <laughs> terms here, to make investments that generate credits on a certified credit market and, and outcomes, I believe, are being certified by Iowa, one of the universities in Iowa, University of Iowa, perhaps. Uh, so when you have this kind of practice, there's always that, okay, is it a modeled potential outcome or is it an actual outcome in results and whatnot? And, and when you're generating a credit market, that's where you need to start looking at, right? You're not going to necessarily trade based on, uh, let's hope that's what happened. It's investors want to actually be able to certify actual returns. So the Iowa State Revolving Fund is essentially providing a, a long-term investment, kind of a loan. Yeah, you know, I almost think so. I'm like a corporate 
bond, basically. It's investing not in the project itself. We do a lot of that in a lot of other states where the, the Nesref can actually invest in the agricultural practice itself that results in hopefully, you know, reduced sedimentation, reduced nutrients. But this is not investing in the project, investing, it's investing in this joint venture that is bringing in other sources of financing as well. And this is kind of a you know minority investor to help get things up and running. And then the loan will be paid off over the, you know, once the credits are sold, the, you know, the, the farmer reharvest purchases the credit from the farmers and then turns around and sells them to, in the case of carbon, it's like Cargill and other users and in, in, in nutrients, it's actually USDA. It's at least one utility in the area that's looking at it from a, a trading to, to offset its its own nutrients. And I believe the state of Iowa is as well. So, and then, and then, and they'll repay the, the investment is at a fixed, you know, fixed rate over the years from the proceeds of those credits. So it's really trying to use the, you know, the market to generate increased and certified nutrient reduction. This is like a loan to de-risk market-based transactions. This absolutely. Is business. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. So we're looking, you know, that, that's, a, again, a pilot project. There's a lot of interest in kind of these similar type of things going on. We've got some state partners that are really innovative and really, you know, pushing pushing for us. And we're really happy to, to work with them. Staying in the confines of our, our statute and our regulations. But it really is important that we don't just sit back and do what we've always done. If we're really going to get that non-point source impact on water quality we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. So non-point source, let's think about that in the context of Mississippi. You grew up in the Twin Cities. There are dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico from ostensibly from farming upstream. Could this program scale? Could it could it help with something as big as dead zones? Like could we manage nutrient pollution at the basin scale with something like this? I think I think it's a part of it. I mean we we there's a hypoxia task force that deals just with that hypoxic zone in Mississippi that all, all the state, all of our EPA and their state partners and other federal partners all the way down through the upper and lower basins. And we're really focusing on nutrient reduction. I've made a presentation to the task force a few months ago on, on the potential for the SRF to fund practices. It's not so much the market-based we we're talking about here, it's just to fund those practices. Mm-hmm. So there, there's huge interest in that, as well as collaborating with other EPA funding programs like our Section 319 program under the Clean Water Act is a direct grant for non-point source. And I think we have a tendency to just have programs run, but we're trying to look at how can we integrate them? How can we layer them? How can we develop multiple benefits? So that I think that's the way we kind of increase the uptake and, and scalability of these projects. So it's not just uh, one-off. So a lot of interest going on. There's, you know, obviously there's a lot of governance and institutional barriers that need to be addressed in order to do these type of things. But yeah, I've been in this business quite a while, like you, I think, John, and, and I am optimistic. I think, I'm not sure if it was the last five years or 10 years, but it's changed. We are starting to see people realize that we're going to have to make some of those. It's not about money is important, but it's not about the money. It's how to get the money flowing to the right places, resulting in the right impacts. That's a good point um, and a good place to end on on the Iowa pilot program. Any any others that are different that you just want to spotlight? Yeah, I, I would like to. I mean, we have all sorts of one. I don't think I shared with you before, uh, John, is I'm personally very excited about it is is one of our what we call recognition program, Pisces uh, recognition program. And last year was one in Virginia which was a $20 million loan to the Nature Conservancy, direct to the Nature Conservancy from our Virginia SRF program 
for uh, forest management uh, in Clinch Highlands is part of a much larger project that's going on there. For those of you out this way, Cumberland Forest Project received a $20 million loan, which is part of a broader $60 million project. They're funding it from other sources as well. So this is a really big picture project that is, again, not directed for wildfire perhaps, but it's good forest management practice for source water protection. It's a relatively disadvantaged area. It's been harmed by uh, economic downturns. So ecotourism is really big there. So by doing this, we're looking at, as I think you know, the Nature Conservancy does, kind of looks at those multiple benefits, right? It's not just about the environment. It's about ensuring that there's good ecotourism, that there's good good forest, good, good civil cultural practices and timber practices so people can make a living doing it as well. So that's critically important. And for here, again, for, for someone who, before I got into water, I was going to be a wildlife biologist. Um, that area is a, is a really big multi-state wildlife uh, corridor as well, migration corridor. So they're really trying to figure out how to get the right tracks of land. And we're, you know, I'm very pleased that this this track that this twenty, this easement of this twenty million dollar loan is covering and making investments and improvements is is going to provide those. So. I just, again, I like it because it's a multiple benefit. It's not just about pe- nature, it's about people. It's, you know, how do you make sure that pe- we're making investments that kind of like in, in Flagstaff, that people understand because we all like nice forests and clean environment, but at the end of the day, resources have to be allocated places. So if you can kind of show that these multiple benefits that impact other parts of life are important to them as well, I think that's how we get people to get excited about making investments in, in water quality slash forest management as well. I wanted to maybe end on a, a note about partnerships. You know, just in thinking about the three examples that that we've talked about here, we've got municipalities, we've got utilities, we've got farmers, we've got big private sector companies like Cargill, we've got finance and venture cap kind of firms that are setting up the markets for doing the transactions. We've got NGOs, we've got tribes in some of your examples. So lots of different partnerships. One of the partnerships that we talk about a lot, that I write about a lot in my newsletter and, and that we'll talk a, a lot about in this, in this particular chapter on natural infrastructure is, is the private sector corporate partnerships. Corporations are gearing up now to create targets, science-based targets for their water stewardship goals. How can big companies get engaged in this? I mean, you gave the one example of Cargill who is buying credits downstream for, for nutrients or for carbon, but how do they get involved with EPA on this sort of stuff? Yeah, it, it, it's a really, really good question, John. And it, it, it's also difficult. I mean, a lot of our programs are, we can provide through the non-point source program to assistance to private entities like farmers and others. You know, I, I don't, we don't provide assistance directly to companies, nor do you want it, because what you want to do is leverage those investments, right? That's why I'm really excited about trying to layer in how can how can this almost patient capital, if you want to talk it that way, attract other investment as, as well. So I don't have any really good examples. One thing I'm, I'm really interested in trying to explore further is we have an eligibility under the Clean Water Act to use the Clean Water SRF for what we call watershed finance partnerships. Haven't got our hands around it yet, right? It's just Okay, well, how is that different than investing in stream bank restoration in that watershed or nutrient reduction from agricultural lands in that watershed? You know, it's intended to be something beyond that and maybe perhaps facilitate overall planning, implementation of a broader watershed approach, bringing utilities, bringing agricultural users, bringing in 
corporations that, you know, ideally that's their source of water as well. I mean, it, it could be, it could be someone far away who's looking to do a good thing and that that's fine as well. But as you know, particularly in the manufacturing sector or whether energy sectors always had a huge interest in sustainability water supply for various reasons. You know, the reason you see the Microsofts and others there now is because water is critically important to production of, of their facilities as well. So they, for their own economic interests, need to ensure a resilient water supply within their watersheds. So I'm hoping to see, can we play a role in helping bring that all together? It's not formed out yet, lots of ideas out there, but can this be a catalyst? We're not gonna, you know, we're too small to fund everything going on, but can it be a catalyzing dollar? Can it be a catalyzing program funded with SRF that can bring others in as well. So it's nascent, it's necessary. And, you know, I'm looking forward to and open to any discussion, any ideas that people have and how best to pursue that further. That's great. These are some good examples. And, and I'm glad we got to talk about that, that last partnership piece. Hey, this has been really fun. It's really interesting to learn what you're doing now back at the EPA again. And, and I really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining the podcast. John, thank you very much. Uh, I look forward to the rest of the the chapter and uh, all your podcasts. And thank you very much. A couple of high-level recaps from this podcast. The first is that while traditionally I think we think of the EPA as a as a regulatory agency, it, it does have the capability of doing some some fabulous and innovative work on the finance side proactively. And I think we heard a lot of really good examples of of that. One from my home state of Arizona, where the EPA is working on drinking water, clean water from a basin scale perspective by financing the city to actually do some good conservation work, some good forest fire protection work on federal lands in the watershed up above Flagstaff, where they source their drinking water. And the second one was in Iowa with Quantified Ventures who's bringing in private capital to create a marketplace for carbon and and water quality credits. And the EPA is helping to de-risk that that marketplace and to help farmers farm their lands using better practices to reduce nutrient inputs and carbon emissions and and then selling those credits to to big companies like Cargill. So I think from my perspective, the big take-home is partnerships, diversity in partnerships, and diversity and financial instruments and tools, those two things lead to some pretty interesting projects that have the potential to scale and really have a big impact at the watershed scale. That's it for this episode of Audacious Water. If you like the show, please rate or review us and tell your colleagues and friends. For more information about Audacious Water, visit our website at audaciouswater.org backslash podcast. Until next time, I'm John Sable.